back on air. Thanks for downloading the latest episode of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Once more on the hunt for those one Ashes test wonders. Over the next two episodes, we're going to sign off from Ashes in the 80s. We started off with Botham's Ashes in 1981 with Mr. Paul Parker. And since then, we've had the pleasure to meet Arnie Sidebottom, Jonathan Agnew, Dave Gilbert and Murray Bennett, all of whom played in the 1985 Ashes. Those episodes are available on demand wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget our Women's Jubilee Series special with Karen Reed, Annette Fellows and Anne Mitchell, a celebration of the 84 to 85 Ashes series, the only five-match test series in the history of the women's game. We've now arrived at the 1989 Ashes in England, a thumping series win for Alan Border's men, which laid the platform for the era of Australian dominance that lasted way up until 2005. There were three men who played their one and only Ashes test in 1989, but one has sadly passed away since I began this series. Alan Eagleston, who played in the sixth test of the series at the Oval, will make sure that we pay tribute to Alan in a subsequent episode. John Stevenson joined him in the starting 11 for that test and will tell his story on the next episode. But today we're going to get the Aussie perspective on proceedings with Greg Campbell and find out more about how his cricketing journey took him from Tasmania to the Saddleworth League in Lancashire and finally to Papua New Guinea. Let's get to the action. Greg Campbell was a right-arm fast bowler for Tasmania and Australia, taking 120 first-class wickets at 33.46. He played 12 ODIs and four tests for Australia, including his one Ashes test at Headingley in 1989. Greg, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thank you, mate. Yeah, it's been a long time. We've been trying to get this together for a while, but we finally got there. It's a bit like my career. So, uh, yeah, no, thank you for inviting me on. No, not at all. Really good to speak to you. So what I'd first like to ask you, I mean, of all the people I've interviewed, you've got the most fascinating current job. You're CEO of Papua New Guinea Cricket. How the hell did that happen? Oh, that's a good question. It's going on 13 years now. It was, uh, I was in uh, in Brisbane and I've been in there 30 years since I moved from Tassie and the, this job came up through Andy Bickle was the coach and I know Bick went to on, on to sign for the IPL probably when it, when it first started as the Super Kings bowling coach so he needed to step down so I went up as assistant coach, ended up being coach and then six to 12 months later become CEO of Papua New Guinea and you know to be honest I was like most people around the world didn't know where PNG was and it was two and a half hours off Australia when it come up so I went up there they were a developing country and I saw an opportunity you know to help out and get back into it and it's been uh, it's been up and down ever since it's been a pleasure but uh, yeah that's how I more or less got into it through just contacts of cricket. Yeah yeah one of the questions I'd like to ask you just before we dive into your career and rewind to that 1989 Ashes and your time for Tasmania was Ricky Ponting. What's it like to have him as your nephew? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we had a little bit to do with Rick when he was young. He's, you know, he's my nephew. And, you know, when we get asked questions about Rick, I always revert to the family, you know, scored 15,624 runs and took 17 wickets or 14 wickets, whatever it was, and took 100 and something catches. So I always revert to the family. But, yeah, look, he was always showed potential when he was young. You know, you go back to the stories about Kookaburra signing him when he was 12 or 13 years old and the guy going back to Kookaburra in Melbourne said I've just signed a young boy and we're giving him gear and you know his boss sort of 
went mad at him and look at the future that holds. So he was always showed that, you know, we, you don't know anyone's going to perform how they did, but he always had that ability to do it. And he loved cricket, you know, he, ever since he was a kid when played in the backyard and he was given every opportunity to do that. We lost a few tennis balls and, and windows. He would never bowl. So that's why <laughs> he had to bat and I had to bowl. So I think that's where we both honed our skills in the backyard. Yeah, big time. Yeah. We'll get on to your um, Ashes test in a moment. I'd just be keen to know, first of all, what are your first Ashes memories? Who who do you remember watching when you were a young lad? Oh, everyone, mate. You know, you know, the chapels, Dennis Lilly was always always your idol and you know, the magnificent West Indies watching thing. I can remember when I was a kid, my you know, my dad was Scottish, my mum was Irish, so they you know, they sort of grew up my dad grew up with cricket and the radio on top of the fridge, you know, with the old commentary and we used to listen to that at night and yeah, it was just in Tasmania. That's what you did. You you played cricket in the summer and you put the more or less the cricket bat in the cupboard when the season finished and the football come out, AFL. So we were grew up with it. And I, I just loved the loved the, the side of cricket and how you could get involved. And you know, again, I didn't think I'd end up where I was in life that you don't as a kid, but I just loved loved the game. Yeah, well let's come on to your cricketing career then. I've seen you described as an aggressive cricketer. Would that be fair? Yeah, yeah, probably everyone tells me that. Everyone says how much I've mellowed as I've got older. Yeah, I was aggressive, I suppose, uh, on the field. It was that era we went through. I think the Australians did play aggressive. But one thing about that, at the end of the day, we all sat in the room and had a beer and, and got on. And, you know, some of my best friends are still ex-cricketers uh, for other countries like Sri Lanka. I got on well and it was probably one of them games that we played in Bill Reeve and some one-day games where the, it was quite a quite aggressive and thing but everyone got on afterwards so yeah I mean uh, you had to make up for lack of skill somehow and a bit of aggression and that's the way we were brought up you know to to play it hard but be uh, good good off the field and that was the main thing that was instilled in me you play sport hard but you know you're a good person off it yeah absolutely so so how did you first get into cricket in Tasmania who was the first club side you played for uh Mowbray same as Ricky so we all come through the Mowbray Eagles, so we played there, played underage, and you know, a big influence in my young career was Jack Simmons. You know, the Lancashire guy. Jack had a lot to do with Tassie, more or less, got him onto the onto the Shield team. They won the Gillette Cup way back then. So, you know, Jack Simmons had a big go, uh, a big influence on me to as a kid. And we went through the, the cricket stage and into Mowbray, and then I moved down to Clarence when I sort of made the uh, Tassie side in probably I'm thinking now 85, 86. Richard Ellison. You know, the former England was their pro and got injured. So I played one one shield game then and I moved to Hobart. Sort of had a bit of a two-year break where I couldn't get back in and look back on my career then. I probably didn't train hard enough or have the right mental attitude. So I learned from that. And then Dirk Weller moved uh, and Dave Gilbert, who I know you've had on this sh- on this show, moved to uh, Hobart. Dirk is the captain and loser Dave Gilbert is the fast bowler. And Dirk had talked to me and said that, you know, you've probably wasted two or three years of your career here if you put your head down and get fitter and had the right attitude, it did. And then, you know, I played that year and 12, 12 games later or 10 games later, I'm playing for Australia. So, you know, it's just someone having a bit of belief in you. And that's what I still instill in now, even as CEO, have a belief in people that it's closer than you think if you just do the right thing by yourself. Looking back, you probably thought it was just going to happen. Nothing happens in life unless you, you're dedicated and put your head down. And having that conversation with, with Dirk and Dave Gilbert played a big part in that, talking to him that we can form uh, a partnership here and the partnership was bowling they talk about batting partnerships but you also got to bowl in partnerships and you know he had the faith in me to do that so I, I trained hard and I got probably the fittest I've ever been and you know got the break and 
and the rest is history, as they say. I had a good Shield season and, you know, uh, I went from there. I mean, you couldn't have thought at the start of that season, being at your first full season with Tassie, that by the end of it, you'd be on the tour to England. Yeah, no, no idea. Probably didn't even enter my mind at the end of the season, you know. The first inkling I had was the last Shield game we played when Laurie saw our chairman of selectors turned up. And, you know, I was never never seen Laurie or met him and he turned up at the ground, introduced himself and maybe I thought I was a chance then, but you still didn't. You still didn't know, but uh, yeah, I, I just enjoyed enjoyed the game. You always have aspirations for playing for Australia, but uh, you know, you didn't think it was going to come ten games in. So, why do you think you were called up, and how did you find out? How was it communicated to you? I think our uh, local press found out before me. Right, before <laughs> back in them days, you talked to all the old cricketers. You know, mm. our gear used to turn up at the post office in a bag. <laughs> you know, uh, phone call, sort of like I said at the end of that Shield game, Laurie come and had a chat and just said, you know. You're probably in the mix here. There's a little bit to go. Uh, I think they were looking for a like for like for Terry Alderman. You know, Clemmy, they tried to what would succeed in, in the UK. And I played a couple of league games seasons in the UK. So I knew the conditions. I'd been to to Old Trafford to their training net. So it was more or less a like for like if if Terry went down that I was there to, there to fill in for that. So that wasn't the first time you've been to England then. You'd played was it in the in the Saddleworth League you played before that? Yeah, I played in the Saddleworth League, 85, 86. Just that was a big league back then. I think there was 25 teams. It was just up from Oldham. When I went to there, it was uh, Sadiq Muhammad was a the pro thing, and then Patrick Patterson was there. It was a good, good, strong league. So, you know, you learnt learnt to play there. And, you know, coming from Tassie, I was used to the cold, but I weren't used to playing on wickets that were covered with snow. Uh, it was a part of your life you look back on and said how good it was. All right. Well, let's have a look at this Ashes Tour in a bit more detail, if that's all right with you. So, you know, you're suddenly in the Australian touring party. What was the environment like? Was it welcoming? Uh, did you feel immediately part of the squad? Was it quite social? It was. Yeah, I immediately felt uh, close to the boys. I can remember we met at the uh, height in Melbourne for a week. You know, more or less had a fitness camp there and pulled up in a in a taxi, I think David Boone was the other Tasmanian, first two Tasmanians to represent Australia in the one team. And I think Booney had already gone to Melbourne, so I flew in by myself, pulled up outside the Hyatt, and the taxi behind me was Alan Bordo, which I hadn't really met before. Played a couple of Shield games against him and lucky enough to get him out and introduced himself. And it was like we'd known each other for a long time. To be honest, um, and I know AB's been quoted, it was probably the best tour he'd ever been on. It's easy when you're winning, but... Uh, they made a, a pact is a bad word, but, you know, there was no wives or girlfriends allowed on that tour. In 81, 85, when probably Australia should have won the Ashes, there was not blaming the, the partners for that, but he just said that he thought on this tour we needed to be all together. And it was, it was a great tour. It was, you know, one of them tours where nothing nothing went wrong. I think we lost one game on the tour and everything, everyone seemed to click and everyone got on and everyone enjoyed each other's company. And, and, and there was a bit of social. Um, activity afterwards you know well, you, you can't not have social activity when your room with no views yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> that was my roomie for most of it and I had Stephen Moore for the test matches so you know we're actually a bit superstitious because when we won the first test AB didn't want to change anything so you kept the same roomies all the way through which I know the other 15 blokes on the tour were happy I got Murph but he was a, he was a great roomie but yeah the tour was was magnificent you know, sponsored by 4x back then you know there was a lot of hype. You look back at it and say, what a great tour. I wish I could do it again tomorrow. Yeah, I bet you do. Yeah, absolutely. What do you remember about the, because you played obviously in the first test at Headingley. So 
you got a run out early on in some of the tour matches. Do you remember any of those? I mean, I was looking at the MCC match at Lords where you got Fairbrother first ball. Do you remember any of that match? Yeah, I remember most of it. You know, you, you people asked you and you look back. And back then, you know, we played every county and we played the Oxford Uni or Cambridge Uni too, I think. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of breaks. And I enjoyed that thoroughly, you know, because, you know, I played the first test and then I didn't play any other, so you had a lot of cricket, and that was good quality cricket. And you know, we took that in our stride. We bussed around everywhere, and the bus was always a social event going down. And you know, even uh, winning the first test, you could just sense in the rooms that there was something building. You know, Autumn getting ten wickets, Stephen Moore getting a hundred, Mark Taylor got a hundred in that game. There was something about as the game went on that there was something clicking in the team, and I think England felt it too. As the tour went on, they sort of started falling apart. People went off to the rebel thing, but, you know, it was just that momentum that happened through that Headingley test match that you could see something building. Yeah. Well, what was incredible in that series that England used 29 players, Australia only used 12, which I kind of shows the, the consistency in selection. Obviously, you were the 12th because you only played in that first test. Were you disappointed not to play in some of the other games after that first test? Uh, I was. Yeah, yeah, of course you, of course you're disappointed, but I understand why. I mean, they took four seamers in there and didn't play a spinner, and we had Tim May and Trevor Holmes who actually come in and play the rest. And yeah, you know, it's like anything. I didn't bowl that well in that first test. I remember, I think it might have been first change I come on and second change, and Merv was at mid on giving me his usual encouragement. You know, this bloke's not a bad player. Don't bowl badly. And, you know, just joking. And I said, well, that's fine. Just give me the ball, and I'll bowl. And he said, you've got it. So I didn't even realise I had the ball in my hand. You know, it's, 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 it's a nervous thing. And you sit back now, and I remember when I got picked and I was sitting in, going back to the height in Melbourne, David Boone said you know, to me, it's now 80% mental and 20% ability. That's what it is now. And you have to get your head around that pretty quickly. It's not 80% the other way. It's all mental now. And looking back again, it's always, you know, looking back, a good thing or a bad thing, I probably wasn't mentally in that right space and that was all new I found out the night before I was playing but even leading up to there a couple of county games you didn't think you'd, you'd play you knew Autumn and Lawson and probably Merv was going to be there the last warm-up game I think was against Derbyshire it was a terrific match Australia won by 11 runs so you know and you took wickets in that so maybe that you know pushed you into the reckoning turned up and it was a green hard wicket I mean that, and they had uh, Bishop, former West Indies, and I think Devon Malcolm would have been. Devon Malcolm, um, yeah. Devin Malcolm, and we didn't score a lot, and it was green top. It was one of these wickets, and even I can remember AB saying, what are they doing here? They're trying to hurt us, you know, with these blokes, and we end up winning the game, and I did get a few wickets, and I think I even got a few runs with Hills in the second inning. I enjoyed it. Like I said, I, I thought I was ready, but mentally probably going to the test match. Was a bit overroaring, but you look back and I actually said somewhere, someone the other night, if I'd have played another one or two, I could have been all right because Shane Warne took one for in his first test match for a couple of hundred and Merv took one for a couple of hundred and ended up both getting 200 wickets. But it didn't turn out like that, but I wouldn't turn, wouldn't take anything back. And you, you learn from things as you move on. And as you get older, you can instill that in the new players coming through. And was it AB the night before the match who told you you were playing? Probably Simo, Bobby Simpson, I think. In a roundabout way. Like I said, I was pretty laid back and, you know, in the team meeting. And by the way, because I used to get called junior because I was probably the youngest and the newest and junior, you're playing tomorrow. Good luck. That was about it. Yeah. Because, yeah, you know, we like you said, we'd probably played a few county games leading up to that. I played in, in most of them, you know, probably at least two or three, I think. That's how it was. That's how it rolled back then. It's a lot different nowadays. Was it difficult as well? Because Australia batted first. And as happened throughout that series, they racked up, you know, a serious amount of runs. 
601 for seven declared. Even Murph Hughes got 71 in that match. Was that difficult to have to wait for your time to bowl in terms of the nerves building up and up and up? You would never use an excuse, but it probably was. You know, I was keen to bowl the first day. You know, you think I need to get out there. So I think it was probably the second day after lunch or longer when we actually took the field. And I, I think there was a break before I bowled. I Alderman and Lawson would have opened. So it was, you know, nearly a day and a half before he actually is given the ball. So you look back at it, but it's not an excuse. And Merv did get 75 or something. And I, you know, I was going to bat before Merv. And then at the last minute, he just, they just changed it and said, go out and have a slog, Merv. And he ended up getting, you know, 75. We put on a, another run. So I probably didn't even get a chance to go to the middle until, you know, we bowled. So look back at it and, you know, and you watch Alderman and Lawson and, and the players coming in. And I probably got a little bit nervous, but you can't you can't blame that because we should be able to cope with it. But, you know, it, it's all experience. Though. But, you know, you got your wicket. And how, how big a moment was that when you got Pringle LBW? Is that a really proud moment? There's a photo going around. I think Dean James was more happy than me. If you see me, I didn't celebrate too much. And, you know, I thought uh, I didn't bowl that well. And, you know, there's a lot of excuses. I I did struggle coming down the hill. It was a bit at Headingley. I bowled a few no balls. And when you start bowling no balls, you always hold back a bit. And But I think Dino was, was more to me. I can remember Ian Botham, you know, they're going through the team. And he said, well, young lad, you got you got the Queen of England out. Eric Pringle, so he made me feel even better. You know? Brilliant. And just looking at the end of that match, I mean, did you expect England to collapse quite as dramatically as they did? I mean, they, they were all out for 191 from 131 for four. And when they did, did that kind of instill a belief in the whole squad that actually they're there for the taking in this series? Yeah, I, I sort of mentioned that before. We could see something building. And, you know, when you, it's a funny thing, and you can't explain to anyone. When we took the field in the second innings, there was just something that happened that we knew that we were going to win quite easily. Everything went according to plan. I mean, with Clemmie got another five for, and I don't know whether LBs and or caught behinds. They just seemed to nick it. And I can remember one of our uh, meetings, and AB will probably, if he ever listens to this or film, he, he played with, with these guys at Essex, but he made a pact not to talk to them on the field. He said, I, I was good mates with him. He played a lot of years. He just didn't talk to him. And they couldn't understand why he wouldn't talk to him. I can remember Graham Gooch asking him, you know, Bordo, what, why, why are you talking? And he just wouldn't talk to him. He just sh- shut them out. And he put a short mid-wicket in with Clemmy Bowling. And you can see Gooch look and say, well, why you got that? I don't get out there. But it made him think different. And then Clemmy got him LB quite a lot because, he, you know, he did hit across his front pad, but he did it successful. When AB put this short mid-wicket in, he just looked at him as to say, what what's going on here? And he stopped playing that shot, and he was given you know out plum LB, and you could just see that the, they weren't switched on. And we come with an attitude of you know we're going to win this. And Tony Gregg helped us going back way before we even toured when he said it's the worst Ashes team ever to leave Australian shores, and that made the headline. So that got a they got a few people in, and you know there's great characters on the tour. I mean I'm probably jumping ahead of Graham, but Murviews had a great tour, but he took a lot of pressure off people. You know, he was the character, the clown of the team, and we were winning and everyone wanted Merv. So they left a lot of the other people alone and we just went on. And he took an enormous amount of pressure off everyone else on that tour. He did a lot of media stuff so people could get on with their game. I remember Stephen Moore, that was his breakout series, wasn't he? He was not out in the first three tests, you know, and Stephen got a bit of media, but they didn't. They all went after Merv. So, you know, the blokes like that could just concentrate on what they were there for. 
yeah, invaluable to have someone like that on your side because he can take the attention away and you can all just concentrate on your games. Yeah, it's a really good point. But it's interesting what you say about AB as well. It's uh, incredible discipline from AB to do that. What was he like with you guys behind the scenes? Was he was he kind of like in business uh, mode with you guys or was he pretty relaxed and one of the guys? Yeah, he's pretty relaxed. He got the nickname Captain Grumpy, but we never saw it. I mean, a couple of times, a couple of times you could see it, especially in a county game. I think when the Smith, two Smith boys got for Hampshire, got runs and he wanted to play golf and we had him five for nothing and he thought he could play golf. And you know, Chris Smith and Robin Smith got runs and the Captain Grumpy came out then. It was probably his only county game, but he was very relaxed, very relaxed. Uh, and he thought, you know, take credit for AB and even Simo. I reckon they got together unbeknownst to me and said, this is how we're going to play this. We're going to be. We're going to just be standoffish to the Pommers and they won't like it because, you know, you know, AB knew them very well. And, and it worked out that way. They, they couldn't understand why he wouldn't talk to them. Yeah, superb strategy. Absolutely. So obviously you only played in that one test. What did you make of the other tests? And it was it just, as you said, you just got on a roll and just absolutely steamrolled them, didn't you, really? Yeah, like I said, and the weather was good. I, I reckon it didn't rain. Probably the last test at the Oval, jumping forward a bit. But you could, like I said, you could just tell Stephen Moore was full of confidence. You know, the top order, probably not even at Lords the next game, but at Knots when they put on 300, the openers. You could just see everyone was was confident. And you could tell that, you know, you shouldn't never say, but the England dressing room might have been breaking down a bit. You know, there was talk of the, the Rebels coming on and AB just said at a dinner once, you know, we've got these guys and we've had them in 81 and we had them in 85, but for circumstances we didn't go on with it so he was relentless and and doing what we're doing like on the field we don't talk to them we don't communicate with them we just do our business and off the field we can and it just kept growing i mean steve Ward grew in confidence mark taylor's breakout i mean everything if it was a tour everything went right like i said there was never there was never a gripe about anything it was one of them tours where everything we did just seemed to work yeah now, as you said earlier, it was a long tour, so you still played a lot of cricket that summer. Obviously, you played in a lot of the other matches against the counties. Any in particular that stand out? Any favourite grounds during that tour? Ah, oh, well, because like I said, I said Old Trafford was always a favourite so for me because I went and watched you know, the Lancashire and the Yorkshire Roses in 85, 86. Jack Simmons was there. You know, Lords is just Lords. You know, when you walk on the grass and you walk out there, it's just a different thing. Like I said, we played the MCC there, even to bowl there. You know, you still think about that. But, but all the grounds in England had character. You know, you, everywhere we went, it was, you know, you were with Australia. If you didn't enjoy it, you might as well not be there. And I know that got brought up by Laurie Sewell and, and Simo a lot. If we're not enjoying this, you know, we shouldn't be here. You're representing your country. You're playing in history against England, which is always there forever, even after we pass away. You've got to enjoy it, and, and we all enjoyed it, and it was good playing the counties. I remember, I could be wrong here, I reckon we won in Yorkshire. They had the bus trip down, and there was a fair bit of alcohol and wine drunk on the bus, and we had to play Lancashire the next day. And Again, I shouldn't talk out of school, but there was a, quite a few blokes hung over, and they had Patterson and Akron. And again, the wicket wasn't great. We might have got sent in. Swampy Jeff Marsh was captain, and everyone was unhappy when he lost. They weren't because the batters were not at their best, and it was more or less a barrage. They went quite hard, and we ended up winning that game too. And I think I was quite lucky. I might have got a few wickets, eight or nine in that game. Yeah, I think you got five in the second innings against Lancashire. Yeah, ended up winning there, but it was probably one of the hardest counting games. Them two guys running in. Good way to get rid of the hangover, you might say. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Now it was a long tour. 
you know, we're playing all the counties as well as the, the six test matches. And then I don't know if you're involved, but then the, the, the tour extended to the Netherlands and Denmark. Did you did you go on that leg of the tour as well? No, there's another story there. Me and Merv flew home. So we got permission to go home because I got married. Yeah, so Merv was the MC at the wedding. No way. Uh, again, that was one of them relationships. And uh, if you can remember, we put a sign at the Lord's Balcony, will you marry me out of a piece of cardboard? And we got May take it down. That was for me, but Merv had a fair bit to do with that. And it went up on the balcony in our dressing rooms. And it's probably the only sign that's ever been up on the balcony in the dressing room. So, yeah, I didn't do the Netherlands thing. Me and Swerve and flew home. Where did you get married? In Tassie. In yeah. Tassie. All oh, right. And how was Merv at the wedding? He did his duties well? He did his duties well, yeah. He did um, entertain everyone. So obviously the other guys who went to the Netherlands couldn't come to the wedding, but I guess all the, all your teammates from Tassie were at the wedding as well, were they? Yeah, so you would go back to Dave Gilbert, you know, Dirk Well, all the Tassie boys were there, yeah. It was, it was quite small, there was only probably 50 or 60 there, but yeah, it was. So that's why I missed that part. No, oh, I see. I noticed you didn't play in the game, so I was thought I thought that was strange. Yeah, looking back now, as as we are, obviously you only played the one test uh, against England. What did it mean to you to play in the Ashes? Oh, it's a lifetime dream, isn't it? You know, I probably still somewhere at home. All my parents have passed away. There's probably still a box somewhere in a garage where you used to fill out the scorecards, listen to the radio, and do that, and say one day I, I want to be like that. So it's a lifelong dream, and not many people get to do it, but. You know, again, we're not being, this is awful. It's not taking anything away from playing for Australia. That's our job. It's a job and, you know, it's a job that you want to represent your country and you you never take it for granted, but you've got to be humble with it. And I think that's what makes a good person, you know. You know, you look back and it's part of my life that was there. But, uh, you know, you've got another part to live too. So you, you've got to move on. But, you know, it was a dream come true in a, in a way. Everyone dreams of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't the end of your Australian career, obviously, because you went back to the Australian summer and then you broke into the the one-day team then as well. As I said, you played 12 ODIs, as I said at the start. Which did you prefer, the one-dayers or the tests for Australia? Oh, both. Yeah, you just love, just love playing. <sighs> if, you, if you look back now and, you know, being in charge of a country and having these ICC meetings that I've attended for the last 13 years, the, world, the game's changing. T20 is becoming the way everyone wants to be, but... The test match cricket is skill. You've got to have a little bit more skill. I'm not taking anything away from the T20 guys. I hope they don't get me wrong out there. But, you know, you've got to have a little bit more skill and a little bit more patience to play the test cricket. And hopefully that never dies. The 50 over enjoyed, you know, you could to do that. And I had a little bit of success at that, you know, against Sri Lanka and all that. But it was just a joy to play for your country and just a joy. Like I said, I love playing cricket, whether it was for Tassie, whether it was for club. I went back and played everywhere. I don't. I didn't want to miss a game. Yeah, and I guess that leads me on to the next question because I guess the next kind of historic uh, moment for you in terms of your Australia career was those two tests against Sri Lanka, including the first ever test at the Bell Reeve Oval. So how special was that for you to play, you know, at your home ground in a match for Australia? Oh, again, it was one of the pinnacles of of my career, me and David Boone at Bell Reeve Oval. And, you know, Steve Randall was the umpire. So he was the third the Tasmanian in that thing and you know to play in that first test we've had one reunion since and to play against Sri Lanka like I said earlier some of my best mates are still you know Graham Lebroy and Aravinda De Silva and to play in that in front of your home ground I remember going out to bat at nine and the ovation of the people there yeah you know you remember when you were a kid chanting Lily they were I could hear them chanting my name and it was just a 
just a great buzz. And Booney was actually probably one of the nervous I've seen him in all his test career, you know, to play a home test in front of your home ground, one of the first ever. Was, it was quite a big moment. And there's a lady on the hill doing a print, a proper print, which still hangs in the Burley Oval, and we all got a copy of that. Look, it's come a long way, the Oval, since then. And it's a shame they don't get more test matches and, you know, they always seem to miss out. And so hopefully uh, moving forward, you know, Cricket Australia will see that. But to play in that, you can never take it back. And it was a great moment. Yeah. Were you and David Boone head of entertainment? Did you have to take the Sri Lankans to the best hotspots in Hobart? No, we left that to them, I think. I think Merv might have taken them out (laughs) after him sledging him a lot. He might have been there in their dressing room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's always Merv. It's always Merv. It's always Merv. Yeah, there you go. And then you played against Pakistan as well. Did you did you enjoy playing against them? You already mentioned was it Makram who, who you played for against Lancashire. But uh, how did you rate him in, on the international scene? He was probably the best bowler I ever faced. And I've got a little story if you got time in that test match. I think I could have been part of a hat trick. I'm not sure, but uh, he went round the wicket with the new ball, and I got to know wasn't even through the Lancashire leagues and when he was there. And I reckon I played and missed six deliveries in a row with the new ball. I managed to nick one after missing six deliveries in a row. You know how the textbook tells you to play straight? Well, after about the fourth ball, I just started doing the windscreen wiper because I thought I'm not going to hit him. And again, I'll go back to who was at the other end, Merv. And after the third ball, I said to him, mate, what do I do here? You know, And he said, well, good luck. And we're, running, we're not running ones. And you got to either hit boundaries or twos or fours. He said, well, because I ain't getting up that end. No, Wasm was good. Java was good. Again, I think we end up sneaking home in that test match after being in a dominant position. I think Wasm got his first 100. He did. He got 100 in that match, yeah. In the second innings. Um, but it takes a real bowler to get him out when he's got 100, doesn't it? Yeah. It was the only one that swung, I think, bowled. Yeah. Mind you, if you go back, I think we had him caught behind when he was about 50 and he was given not out. But anyway, that's that's... Another story. And then your final test appearance came against uh, New Zealand in Wellington. And, you know, talking to great bowlers, great all-rounders, and was a Akram, Richard Hadley in that match. What are your memories of him and how do you rank him against the likes of Akram? Oh, he was unbelievable, wasn't he? I mean, that was a series. I think I was, going back, I was 12th man in the test in Brisbane when, uh, God bless his soul, the late Dean Jones came out and said that Mr. Hadley was a bit old and you could play him with a stump. <laughs> Hadley got nine for in that game, I think. <laughs> And rock and rolled us, and AB wasn't very happy with Dino. And Dino, I remember running down the wicket, still couldn't hit him. And I think Dino came back in and says, maybe I won't say too much in the future. But he did later on in his career too when he told Kirtley to take the armbands off in the Monday game. So that was Dino, God bless him. But, yeah, I played in that test, and I've run into uh, Richard a couple of times. I've gone to New Zealand, you know, in my current job to try to set up games, and I saw him once, and he reminded me that I was the person to get him out his last test. In New Zealand, he went on to play a couple more after that touring, but he said, because he's very much a stats man, Richard, and he said, Mr. Campbell, do you remember you you got me out here, LBW? That was my last innings for New Zealand. No, I didn't, Richard, but thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll remember it now, absolutely. That Shield season of 89-90 was superb for you. I think you took 23 wickets at 20. But following that season, you, you suffered with injuries, didn't you? In the New Zealand Test match, I just felt something in my knee in the second innings and it didn't bother me too much. I just clicked and uh, kept playing through it. And at the end of the end of the Test match, I sat with the physio, Alcock, and I said, it's pretty sore, mate. And he said, yeah, it looks like it. So I went for a scan and I actually pulled the tendon off under the kneecap. So I had it operated on and uh, by the Australian surgeon, uh, the doctor, and he said, there's no guarantee. It's sort of like they call a jumper's knee. Because I did bowl a little bit different. I bowled and then straightened my knee. So it was like a catapult that came over. So he said, we call it a jumper's knee where 
there's a lot of force going through there. And they sewed it back on, and I come, I missed probably six games in the next Shield season. And I probably, in hindsight, like I said, hindsight's a wonderful thing, come back a bit early, and I felt it go again in the next game. So that was sort of, I sort of played through that a bit, and then I had uh, broke a wrist <laughs> playing. So I had a few injuries, and you know, I just couldn't quite come back from the knee, the knee to where I was. So it's probably the end of my Australian career then. I probably did finish then, but I ended up playing, I think, another Shield season there, but it was blowing up every time and there was nothing they could do. But again, that's that's what cards you dealt with, you know. Again, and not being awful, we, uh, if I had the technology we have now, probably could have done a lot different and build the, the thighs up a lot stronger to do it, you know, but that's that. But we all went through injuries and we all played with injuries and back then. So, yeah, that was that was the end of the career. Look, people say, oh, you're sad about that. And I said, no, I not sad because you had the opportunity to represent your country, although it was short, you know, it was still a great experience and you can't help injuries. Injuries are there. It's a part of our game. You then moved over to, to Queensland. So how, how did that come about? And did you think you could, you know, continue your career there? Yeah, well, another great cricketer, we think Barry Richards was the, uh, you know, got on uh, with Barry in through the shield and the hills there and they, they thought, you know, the Queensland conditions would suit. So I went back up there and I probably had another knee operation on there. I went back up there and done the pre-season and got through and played a probably a second level game and it went again. So I had it operated on and they more uh, and it was um, on the Gold Coast because that's where I ended up playing because the Gold Coast had just formed their, their new club. They'd just come in. Dirk Wallam had moved back. He was captain and coach of the Gold Coast. So he reached out to him and said, well, if you're coming here, come to the Gold Coast. It's new. And he went back to Captain Queensland after having a break. So, again, look, the knee went and they more or less said, that's it, we can't do any more. And, you know, it's not going to last playing four-day cricket. You can probably play club cricket. So I had to make the decision after moving to retire from first-class cricket. But, again, it was probably a great move to move to Queensland. We love it. Our daughter had a, not saying couldn't in Tassie, that's where our family is, but she she loved it. She was five or six at the time and we've been there ever since. Yeah. And then obviously you've stayed in the game. We spoke about Papua New Guinea, but you moved into coaching then um, once you retired. Is that the next best thing to play in? Do you enjoy that? Probably more nervous, mate, because um, I always take, always admire cricket coaches because, and I'm not being awful, a lot of other coaches, a lot of sport can make changes during the game. You can take someone off and bring someone on if you want. A cricket coach, you're more or less on the day, you're more or less job's done. Yeah. You know, the, the captain makes the decisions. You know, if someone's not doing well, you can't substitute him off. You get more nervous watching. I actually got more nervous watching. I remember the, going back to the Gold Coast, we won the first ever premiership. It might have been 2000 when I was coach. And I remember I had to go for a walk. I never saw the last innings. You just couldn't, probably a bad watcher of cricket. And I still am a bad watcher of when I go to P&G, watching them try to qualify for World Cup. Because you feel like you've got no control over it. Well, at least when you're on the field you have that opportunity to make a difference, whether it's a catch or a run out or do something. But as a coach and thing, I think I always feel for cricket coaches. I think it is one of the hardest jobs in the world. I've also enjoyed the other part because jumping on the other fence to an administrator because you have the experience of both both sides now. You understand. And when you're a player, you probably don't understand the administration side. The administration is always your enemy as a player. Well, they're not. They make decisions and a business decision and make sure that, the finances there and they can keep the thing afloat. So it's been a it's been a great mix. And what are your just to kind of finish off this conversation, what are your aspirations now for Papua New Guinea cricket? And I guess you're in a, a unique place to comment about the emerging countries and world cricket. 
yeah, you know, we can always say ICC should do more for us, um, but I think we have to look at our own backyard and try to be more sustainable ourselves. I believe we could probably set up our own future leagues program outside what the ICC get. You know, if there's one uh, gripe I get that we don't play enough cricket and it shows when we play sides above us with the experience, T20 leagues are taking over. We know that, you know, domestic T20 leagues are becoming huge because players can earn a lot more money. I'm frightened that test cricket might die a little bit. I don't think it'll ever die. And I'm I'm a believer, if you asked me 10, 15 years ago before I come into Australia, that test cricket should be there. But I believe maybe it should be cut a little bit or two divisions to make it more interesting. That's my point of view. And I know some full members won't agree on that. But I think that's the way to go. I think, you know, unfortunately, we have an all sport have strong two or three teams and the rest drop away. And as the world is now, it's a fast world. To watch a game that more or less people know the outcome, they won't watch it. And that comes with any sport. So we've got to make it more interesting. Papua New Guinea, like I said, we need to play more cricket. We need to develop more more pathways for our children. You know, disappointing we couldn't make this World Cup. You know, got to the semi against Zimbabwe and they beat us by 20 runs. And, you know, I wasn't there, but you talk to the coach and they'll come back with, it was just that little bit of experience again. We probably were in the in the game to win it, but just sort of lacked that experience of cricket knowledge. And I can remember the last World Cup, we played Sri Lanka and Mahala Jai Wardner asked me, could he come and speak to our teams? It was a practice game um, and it was in Abu Dhabi. And he said, you know, you guys were going to beat us. But what you didn't have was experience of playing and the knowledge of cricket. There was a breeze blowing. I think Tony Ura, not, not having a go at Tony, was trying to hit sixes to the long part of the ground in the wind. And because they had the experience to bowl that side, we didn't have the experience to counter it. And he said, you just need to be playing more cricket. So we've got to find more cricket. In PNG, you know, we've changed our strategy for the next thing. Is we don't want to be the, the number one sport in PNG. Rugby is, and rugby always will be. But what we can be is PNG's favourite family sport. But grandpas, grandmas, everyone can play. And we've got to go back to my childhood where, you know, you get kids playing on the beach with mum and dad. You get kids playing in the backyard. You get kids playing in the street. And PNG is still capable of that because you know, they're still not in this, the modern, well, not being awful, the, the modern world, you know, where there's all this technology because they can't afford it. So we can can create that. And if we create that atmosphere where everyone can enjoy and everyone can play this game, you'll see, you'll see them come to the fore. And that's, and that's going to take a lot of work. And it's probably going to be, ongoing after I leave, but that's the legacy we want to leave, that, you know, it's a favourite family sport for everyone. And what a great legacy that would be. Thanks so much to Greg for his time and for sharing his memories of the standout moments in his career from that all-conquering Ashes tour to the historic test against Sri Lanka at his home ground in Hobart. And of course, rooming with Merv Hughes. Greg told us about how Alan Border made a conscious decision not to talk to any of the England players during that series, and that included his old Essex teammates. One of those was John Stevenson, and we'll hear his story on the next episode. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett, and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes.